This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Welcome to the Australian Museum's podcast. Hello, I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO of the Museum, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to hear one of the Australian Museum's most favoured sons and, in fact, most accomplished scientists. I'm talking, of course, today about the extraordinary Tim Flannery. Uh, Tim is, of course, well known as a climate scientist today, but started life as a mammalian biologist here managing the mammals collection of the Australian Museum, where he served for a remarkable 15 years and discovered a litany of species. So Tim is well known in the museum's community around the world. In fact, as well known as he is in the climate world, where, of course, he's been a major influence from the day his book, The Weathermakers, was published all those years ago. I'm thrilled today to be able to welcome Tim Flannery to the microphone in this Australian Museum podcast. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much, Kim. It's great to be here. Well, it's good to have you back in the museum and, of course, welcoming you back as a fellow of the Australian Museum now and, of course, playing a big role in a new initiative we have, the Climate Solutions Centre. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the most exciting and newest bits of the centre is the Spark Exhibition, which I've been engaged with. And it's uh, it really is going to be a lot of fun. And it's about solutions, which is what I think we really need. Well, we do. So the Climate Solutions Centre at the Australian Museum is going to be launched around World Environment Day. And along with collaborator Dr Jenny Newell here at the museum, who's been leading this as well, we decided that we would make climate change a key element of the museum's work in the future. It's because it touches on so much of what we do here, doesn't it? People wouldn't think that a natural history museum maybe would be so related to climate change issues. But of course, in all your early work here, it's exactly what it's about. Well, exactly. And look, could I just say Jenny is sort of one of the global leaders in this area of museum climate change studies. And, um, you know, she's done a great job in bringing a focus of climate change to this this great institution. You can, you can almost see the museum actually as sort of a, it is a grand mechanism for understanding climate because the collections that have been accumulated here are, are just full of information about past climates, past environments, and where they're, they're really the key to understanding what's happening. And if people realise that our collections, both our natural history collections and our cultural collections, we've got over 21.9 million objects and specimens, which is the largest collection in the Southern Hemisphere. And if you think of the natural science collections, which are over 19 million in number, and that's every little fly and beetle and bug that we have, as well as the larger mammals, of course, that you studied. These animals, these creatures, the fish collection, they tell us the story of the past, don't they? Look, they absolutely do. And in fact, that, that biodiversity element of climate change is, is critically important because animals and plants respond often with exquisite, exquisite sensitivity to climatic shifts. And so where animals were occurred 100 years ago or 150 years ago, and there'll be samples in the museum here of that, they may no longer occur there today. So those shifts in distribution are really one of the, the great indicators of how fast climate change is proceeding and, um, and where it's all taking us. And, of course, we decided to make 
climate change a key pillar of the museum because museums and natural history museums in particular are the most trusted of all the institutions. I think that's because we grew up visiting them and I know you did, didn't you? I did. I think, isn't it just because they're full of great people, Kim? <laughs> I'd love to think <laughs> no, that. But you, you're probably right that we did, I mean, we grow up and, and museums have been the sort of information point for, for kids for forever. Everyone went on a school ex, ex, an expedition to the to the museum and, yeah. and saw the exhibitions and if you, you just fall in love with them, I think, as a child. It's still the thing now that thrills me most about working here, I must say, apart from the fact I do learn something new every day from people like you, but as I wander around and I see the kids coming into the museum and as they're looking at different things and you see the little light bulbs go off. Yes you know, of engagement with science and understanding. And and that's a big role we play. So by focusing a bit on climate solutions, I think that we're going to be able to communicate really effectively to the public about some of the really exciting innovation that's taking place in this space. Well, that's right. And, you know, I guess the, the museum now is playing that bridging role. It's not just the collections. It's not just natural history. We're going a bit deeper into, into the climate area. And, you know, if you think about what's needed now, we, we need a three-pronged approach to the climate problem. You know, one is just to stop the problem getting any worse, and that involves um, new technologies for generating energy. It, it involves technical issues around the grid and all of batteries and all the rest of it. And the museum's in a great position to, to explain some of that. Mm. And secondly, you know, we need a sufficiently adequate emergency room for all the problems that climate change will cause. So, you know, what does the emergency room look like for the Great Barrier Reef, for example? You know, what does it look like for our the koala, for other, other wildlife? So, well, you know, we all experienced that emergency with the bushfires in Australia firsthand in the last few years. And the world saw it as well. And uh, the Australian East Coast bushfires have been held up continuously as an example of climate change in action. That's right. And the museum has played an incredibly important role in terms of surveying uh, for the damage of that, of, of those fires and the consequences of those fires, which is, you know, the beginnings of that emergency room response. But, you know, the third thing we need to do is to create the equivalent of a vaccine, you know, and uh, for climate change. And, and Sir David Attenborough said it so beautifully in his witness statement, you know, that a life on, on, on our planet. And, um, he said, you know, we have to start treating the forests better. You know, we have to start repairing the ocean and letting the, the natural systems of Earth absorb all of that excess carbon. And, of course, there's other things we need to do. We can so these, well. these ideas you have about this, these, these three points you've just made, they're explored in your new book, The Climate Cure. Well, they are, yeah. And to me, they're pretty common sense. And museums are front and centre of, of delivering a message, in my view. They are because they can talk to people from all backgrounds and all political persuasions. We don't have an axe to grind here. There's no political axe to grind. We, we're a public service organisation. We serve our elected masters of the day. So what I'm interested in, though, is explaining to the Australian public that there are solutions on the horizon and, and uh, that we've got some of those in Australia. I mean, we all have seen recently the impact of electric cars. We've seen major motor vehicle companies around the world saying they're abandoning the traditional combustion engine and only going to make electric cars in the future. Here in Australia, there's been a slow uptake. Maybe the policy settings haven't been quite right yet to encourage it. But, you know, when I drive to work in my combustion engine, which I don't want to drive in any longer, 
And I, I was driving behind a Tesla this morning and I had Tesla envy, I must say. You know, when you see these electric cars coming on the road more frequently, and I know that in a few years there will be a change occurring. It's almost going to be an organic change that happens in Australia as people realise that these are the motor vehicles of the future. But that's just one solution, isn't it, when we think about all the innovation that's taking place here in Australia. Well, that's really true, Kim. It's going to be uh, an economy-wide transition. Um, you know, and in terms of electrification, I think in New South Wales we'll see that start with the buses. We've already seen the state government say they're going to electrify the bus service of the state. And that's going to be tremendously exciting because you know what these buses are like, how loud they are, how polluting they are. It's going to be great to have silent electric buses. Um, but the, the other solutions, you know, we may not see them immediately in the middle of Sydney. They might be out in the country. So, for example, the development of hydrogen, you know, that's probably most sensibly done where there's a need for that fuel. It might be up in the Hunter Valley. It might be, you know, anywhere around the country. It might be near our steel mills. You know? Well, we, we're hearing a lot about hydrogen at the moment, actually, aren't we? Because it really is a technology that is moving ahead quite quickly here in Australia. But also, of course, solar technology. We're one of the world leaders Naturally. I mean, growing up, I always couldn't understand why we weren't the leader in solar when we've got this wonderful climate now changing here in Australia, but un seemingly unlimited solar energy. So can you tell us about what's happening in solar right now? Well, we, I'd just like to say first, Kim, that we were that we were a leader in solar. We had Professor Martin Green at the University of New South Wales, absolute True. world pioneer. Now, if we'd backed him as we should have we would have been in a different place from where we are today. But nevertheless, what's happening in solar in Australia is tremendously exciting because a lot of the change is being driven by individual people. You know, we have the highest penetration of rooftop solar for houses in the world. It's extraordinary. Which is amazing. That's people. That's money coming out of people's wallets. They buy their, their solar panels, you know, put them on their roof and doing their bit for climate change, you know. We're also seeing large-scale solar plants and we're seeing solar technologies that are not just solar PV but things like concentrated solar thermal technologies developing in parts of Australia. So, you know, harnessing the power of the sun is going to be a big, big part of a sustainable future for us. And I look at countries like Spain, which have been very um, aggressive in this area of investing in solar. They've got a lot of sunshine as well. Uh, the fact that we've outstripped Germany in the number of yes. solar installations on our rooftops, yet uh, a little bit like electric cars, I suppose, it's the battery technology that now counts where we can harness that energy generated when it's sunny uh, for when it's not. And that really gives us our base load power in the future too, doesn't it? Well, that's right. And God, as sunny Germany can teach us, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, do you know their best solar resource is worse than the worst solar resource in Australia, which is southwestern Tasmania. So there you so, go. So like why they took the lead rather than us, who could tell? But but it is it is the case that we we need that um, battery technology to 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 be able to store and st electricity and stabilise the grid. Um, it's coming really quickly because there's a double driver for it. You know, one is that the course electrification of transport. So there's a huge focus on on battery technology there. But the second is for these very large scale batteries for, for stabilising the grid. And we've seen a few already in Australia. We had the world's largest ever grid connected battery for a few years in Horndale in South Australia. I think we, there's probably a dozen that size now under construction. It's just, it's an area that's just expanding massively. So we will see batteries 
solar and wind being the backbone, I think, of our annual electricity system. And that'll be liberating, Kim, because there's so much we can do with clean electricity that we can't do with polluting electricity. Oh, I know. And it just frustrates me. It seems to have been taking so long, but I think we're getting the momentum now. I see a shift happening. Do you sense that shift? Oh, look, absolutely I do. And this year we're seeing it, it it's it's really taking off. You know, we're seeing deepened commitments now from, from Europe, from the USA, from Japan. And with those commitments are coming the sensible prospect of border tariffs on carbon-intense goods because those places need to defend their economies from, from people, you know, from industries that are going to be keep polluting. So that makes sense and that will drive a lot of change. So Australia, a world leader in solar, incredible. We could become a hydrogen superpower if that industry develops at the rate we think it will. But seaweed, a super solution, tell us about that. Oh, look, seaweed is so exciting because it allows you to do so many things. I mean, for a start, there's more genetic diversity in seaweeds than there is in all land plants put together. So it tells you that the opportunity is huge for that sort of thing. But seaweed grows fast, it sequesters carbon and can do amazing things, sometimes unexpected things. So one of the greatest examples recently has been the development of this red seaweed called asparagopsis, which is natural Australian seaweed. If you feed 25 grams of asparagopsis seaweed per day to cows, it eliminates 98% of their methane emissions. Now, we know cows have methane because actually people think it's farting cows. It's yeah. mostly burping cows, isn't mostly, it? Mostly a bit of farting, but mostly burping. <laughs> That's true. But, but <laughs> Probably I the mean, opposite of people. But, but eliminating that from agriculture would be an extraordinary step forward. Oh, it's, look, it's massive, absolutely massive, not just for that, but because, of course, all of the energy in that methane is wasted to the cow. But if you stop the methane being generated, the energy becomes available to the cow. So it's like a cow eating 20% more food. It actually it doesn't need as many inputs. It grows faster. It's healthier. So it's a, it's a tremendous outcome. So how are Australia's farmers reacting to this seaweed revolution? Well, the seaweed farm was only established this year. It took a couple of years to crack the um, the, the life cycle of the seaweed and understand how to propagate it. But the, so the seaweed farm called um, Sea Forest has now gone into partnership with Fonterra, which are the world's, they're responsible for a third of the world's dairy exports. And they're working with their farmers now to trial this in the field to make sure that we can deliver the, the seaweed in a way that optimises that result for the cow. So and of course... Good. Here at the Australian Museum, as part of our launch of the Centre for Climate Solutions, we'll be showcasing uh, these 10 different technologies created here in Australia that will make a big impact to reducing our carbon footprint. Seaweed is one of those. Of course, solar is another, but there are also other battery-powered technologies among those. Regenerative farming, rocks and concrete, is another big factor. It really is. Um, we can look at um, biochar in soils. We can look at um, various other aspects of regenerative farming, all of which hark back to that great initiative that Sir David Attenborough talked about of just strengthening Earth's natural systems. It's so, pretty important, isn't it? And it's a role that we can all play in, in doing that, whether it's in our working lives and the influence we can bring to bear there. We've got a responsibility, haven't we, to learn about uh, these new technologies and to understand them and understand their positive impact. Look, we really do. And the exhibition does a great job of, of doing that. I mean, the one very interesting one that I found um, with the exhibition was the use of beer and brewing. Well, to... I think a lot of Australians <laughs> will relate to that one. Well, exactly. And they're using algae to capture CO2 created during the brewing process to be used for various um, 
our outcomes. And this is all work coming out of the University of Technology here in uh, Sydney. So, yeah. My alma mater. See, we're, we spent a lot of time in the bar at uni, but who knew that <laughs> this technology would work? Well, someone there had are... to sacrifice themselves for, for the <laughs> cause, Kim. They did. Uh, Tim, it's great to have you here and have you involved in the museum still. I said you're a favourite son of the museum, and you certainly are not just for your early discoveries on mammals, but your ongoing commitment there and, and to this institution. And we're thrilled that you're part of the Climate Solutions Centre that will be launched around World Environment Day this year in June. On the 3rd of June, we will be hearing from Tim as you really give your manifesto for the future around the climate cure to a free audience. So if you want to hear Tim Flannery at the Australian Museum on the evening of the 3rd. He'll be delivering the inaugural Talbot oration, of course, named for the wonderful Frank Talbot, who was a former director of the Australian Museum, established the Lizard Island Reef Research Station and went on to run the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I mean, an outstanding museum person, but also marine biologist. And Frank is uh, also a favourite son of the museum. So it's going to be wonderful to hear you deliver that significant address on the climate cure. Thanks so much, Kim. And look, it, I, it, it's, a, it's a deep honour for me to be giving that first Talbot oration. I mean, Frank Talbot's one of my great heroes, you know, and there's no more important year to be giving that address than this year where the world stands at a fork in the road in terms of climate action. So if we can make this a, a significant and persuasive call to action, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be doing something quite significant. Well, I, I like your description. It is the most significant year for this. It's why the Australian Museum is launching its Climate Solutions Centre and while we're presenting the Spark Showcase of these 10 technologies. So make sure you come into the Australian Museum in the city. Uh, the great news is we're now totally free to the public, so people can come in any time and come often, and I love seeing everyone return to the museum since our big renovation project discover. So we have a beautiful new renewed museum, but also really special science to share with you and great things to learn. So come along on the 3rd of June to hear Tim Flannery speak. Come along to see the Spark exhibition and uh, look out for more exciting elements of our Centre for Climate Solutions and that'll be on our website. So look forward to seeing you all at the museum soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Kim. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.